Pain Podcast. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Gain, Grow, Retain Podcast. You got Jeff and Jay here, as usual. We have a very special guest with us today, Matt Dixon. What's up, Matt? How are you? Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. How's the weather in D.C.? Is it warm? So, you know what? Yesterday it was, and I recognize this is a podcast and I don't know when it's going to come out exactly. So yesterday is not going to be an act of a lot to anybody, but um, it's probably not the day before you're listening to this podcast. So yesterday was actually uh, February 23rd. It was 80 degrees here in D.C. Which is so. This is like the West Coast is getting pummeled with snow, and we're like people yeah. are outside, like sunbathing here, which is really weird and very, very but, odd weather patterns. Yeah, this year. a little cooler today, but uh, where, how about you guys? Where uh, are things where you are? That's good. Yeah. Um. So we're in right outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Here, we're actually on Seabrook <laughs> Island right now, and and I was telling Jeff it's like five degrees cooler, but it's mid seventies. Super. Oh man. Yeah. All right. Why are yeah. we doing this over like the internet? Why aren't we doing this live? For February though, you know, like normally yeah. it's, like, this is like the coldest time of year for us here in Charleston. Uh-huh. It's been like just lights out the last week or so. Week wow. or two. So sneak preview of things to come. Hopefully. Yeah, you, yeah. Usually by the time we hit March 1st is when I say we're home free. You maybe get a yep. couple of cool days after that, but you can start, you know, getting your summer clothes out and that kind of thing. So we have a bunch yeah. of colleagues up in Canada that don't fare so well in <laughs> So we were just up there for sales kickoff, actually, and it was the first time I had experienced negative forty-two degree weather. That yeah, was- that's no, that's no fun, is it? <laughs> it was not fun, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, cool. All right, so I got an icebreaker question for you, and I did not sure. prepare you for this intentionally. If there was a Jeopardy, que- so you're on Jeopardy, you're you're a okay. you're a guest contestant on on Jeopardy, and there's a, a category that pops up, and it's just you're going to knock this one out of the park. What would that be for you? Oh man. Oh gosh. Um, the easier, easiest one would be like challenger methodology, right? But like we're, we're well, like, yeah, we're, we're, looking for, we're looking for something more personal than that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gosh. Um, so I think you know, I, I think I'm a font of like useless information about things that are not very helpful to people. So I, I think it would be like, um, you know, different different running watches or like, uh, you know road shoes versus trail shoes or like random stuff about like biking gear and golf clubs and stupid stuff that I spend too much time researching and like no way too way more than I should about. Um, But yeah, stuff like that. I think I, I think I do pretty well in those categories. Are you, are you a triathlon guy? I was, but then I, so I grew up a swimmer and I, um, I got back, I kind of stopped doing it because I was like swimming on two teams all through like middle school and high school and, I picked a college that didn't have a swim team because I was so tired of looking at the black line on the bottom of the pool. And um, I kind of fell out of it for a while and I was a runner and biker. And then I was like, Oh, I should get back in the pool. And I did. And I did triathlons for, I don't know, five or seven years. And then I got tired of swimming again. So it's a funny thing about swimming is it's like, it, it's a big ordeal. Like you got to pack all your stuff. You get to the pool. Yeah. It's just, you smell like chlorine. Your hair is all kind of <laughs> much yeah, easier to smell like a run outside, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, are you a, uh, back, you know, next, next icebreaker question is, uh, what's your shoe of choice? You know, is it, are you on the Hoka train? Are you on the Nike train? Are you, you know, a Brooks? Yeah. So I actually, um, I, I've been on for, I was for a long time. I was a Brooks guy. Um, I ran in Brooks Cascadia's and adrenaline for trail and adrenaline's for road. And I've kind of switched on both. And now I'm a Hoka guy. So I'm running the speed goats on trail. And I think I just got a new set of Arahis for road, which I really like a lot. 
light, uh, but a lot of a lot of cushioning. I've got like I need stability shoes because I pronate. So I found that some shoes like Nikes are not great for me. Yeah. Um, I love I, I'm wearing Nikes right now. If I'm, you can't see this on a podcast, but uh, they're cool for hanging out. My brother works at Nike and I um, was like, I can't run in them, man. I just but I do like hanging out in them. They're very comfortable. <laughs> I've worn ghosts, uh, Brooks ghosts for a long time. And then, yeah. uh, but our, uh, the CMO that Jay and I work with, uh, Erica, she's a big, big runner as well. And she's, uh, she's on this train to try and get me to try hookahs. She's, she keeps, you know, spreading the gospel and I keep hearing good things from people. So you're, you're like the fifth person in like a couple of weeks. who's like, Hey, you got to at least try them. Like they're so comfortable. I think, yeah, I think they're worth trying for sure. Um, it just feels like I, they, I don't know. It, maybe they should be like illegal because it feels like they did like propel me forward or something like that. You know, it's, yeah. I don't know. It's, there's some, some going on there. A big marshmallow on the bottom of your feet. I, I love them. That's but, true. Oh, you wear them too? Yeah. Oh, I do. Yeah. I don't run as much as you do, I'm guessing. Uh, actually, I don't run at all anymore. But, <laughs> so, but I tell them we're geriatric. Like, as long as it's more than zero, then you run more than I do. <laughs> Yeah. I walk a lot. How about that? Oh, walking's good. Yeah. Walking's like running. It's just slower. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Not as impactful on the knees. All right. Oh, this is a good point. Yeah. Jeff, what's your Jeopardy category of the week? Because I'm sure people have heard this from you before. And then we'll move yeah, on. Yeah, I've got a couple different answers. Um, I'd say right now, uh, Matt, I have an eight-month-old son at mm-hmm. home. And so I'd say I've become – I could crush any category about how to uh, properly – like lay down your child in the crib to like <laughs> walk away peacefully. I've, I've done every method, yeah. you know, like I've done like football carry in there and like drop them down. I've, uh, you know, uh, I've almost fallen in the crib myself because I'm like getting so close <laughs> to the actual mattress. Uh, yeah. so anything relating to, uh, you know, to trying to keep your, keep your kids sleeping in a crib. I feel like I could crush that right now. My, my kids are too old. I've, I've got four and I've got, uh, and they're, they're way too old. I don't even remember that time. And I'm sure back when we were putting them in the crib, we we're doing it all wrong. So yeah. it's like, it's a miracle. They're still alive. Yeah. Yeah. Trust <laughs> me. Like every, and, and, uh, it doesn't make it easier when like Instagram and all these other apps, oh my God, like yeah. thousands of, you know, people yeah. out there who are giving you these, te- you know, these methodologies or whatever. Um, I've, I've tried to naturally avoid as much of that and try to, uh, rely <laughs> on pure instinct as much as possible against my, yeah, wife, against my wife's best wishes. I, um, I have, uh, you, you ever, guys ever see that? I don't know if you've seen this There's a commercial from like, I think it's like safe light auto, auto glass. And this couple with this young baby is like, there's this little tiny, like Nick in their windshield yes. and they're like, we can't drive around in that. And I'm like, what? Like I drove without seatbelts, man. Like, come on. Like the station wagon. Cross country road trips in a minivan. And my parents <laughs> literally took the seats out of the back and just put us in a pallet. Back. Yeah. You're just rolling around back there. Like, yeah. They could have been arrested for that today. So, oh yeah. yeah. Well, I, I love watching Jeff, you know, nurture his child and take care of this little guy, and just it feels so good to not be in that stage anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I keep hearing, you know, uh, and if, I, if I sound if I sound sick, I'm, I've learned, uh, yeah, that that kids just carry, you know, oh my, everything oh my yeah. in your, into your home. Uh, it's the, a, yeah, it's a I, hazmat zone. I've, been, I've like, been warned for the next eighteen years. I'm pretty much, you know, uh, yeah. home to this. So yeah. <laughs> All right. well, you've got a good supply of masks, I'm sure, over the from, from over the past few years. You might you could use them. <laughs> yeah, so, just wear them at home. Awesome. Your kid will think you looks you look weird. But, yeah, you know. exactly. Hand sanitizer. Um, all right. Well, I'll tell you my. I I just watched Top Gun again with my son the other day. And the original or the new the original, one? Yeah. Okay. I don't know every line to the new one like I do the old one, but I know yeah. all the lines and I know all the all the stuff about it. So that was you know my most. I'd, recent. Go, I'd go up to against you in that that. Yeah. I think I've watched it a lot. Yeah. I it's, remember. I, well, I, 
I remember my parents wouldn't let me watch. Actually, it wasn't R-rated, was it? It was PG-13 when it came out. I think so, yeah. And so I was so afraid it was going to be R-rated because I loved planes and that kind of stuff. And so I, I couldn't even tell you how many times I watched it. Maybe it's... Oh, yeah. I, I, I saw it in the theater when it came out uh, and it was, you know, it was revolutionary. <laughs> it was like, yeah. that's super cool. It's still pretty cool. It still is. Yeah. It's still yeah. very, very, uh, very relevant. So... Yep. Right. My kids, I always did one of my favorite lines is like negative Ghost Rider. And they all look at me like, I have, I'm like, come on, you've seen the movie. Like how many times? Like, like don't stop with the Top Gun references. <laughs> I, I We watched Dumb and Dumber the other night. That's oh, classic. classic. <laughs> and for the first time, my kids are like, oh, my God, I know what you've been talking about this whole time now. Like they do these <laughs> one-liners. Austin Powers has some great one-liners. Oh, yeah. Step Brothers. How about Step Brothers? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what's the other? What's the other Will Ferrell movie? Uh, Talladega Nights has got some good. Oh ones. yeah, Anchorman, a little, little yeah. risky, but it's uh, some good yeah. ones. <laughs> yeah, we take kids a little older. We might need to. Jeff, check don't do this. Eight month old. <laughs> All right, cool. So let's talk about your background, Matt, a little bit. And um, so uh, I don't know when it was. A few weeks ago, a couple months ago. I picked up this book off my shelf, which has been off my, oh, yeah. my shelf, The Effortless Experience, for those who aren't, who can't see us, which is everybody. Um, and I just got completely re-engaged in this book. There's so much good stuff in here. And um, I think I got this originally at some conference I went to. Okay. And I, I couldn't even tell you when, but I've had it since. And I, and I got back into it and it just, there's so many relevant and timely things in it. So, but anyway, like you've written Challenger Sale, Effortless Experience. Mm-hmm. The Challenger customer and the, the Jolt effect as well, right? Yep. That's yeah, a, that's a brand oh, new one. Yeah, yeah. So these books are about sales. They're about customers. They're about support. Like, what's what inspired you to do all this research and and, and get into all these different areas? Because they seem a little disparate. Uh, yeah, and it's a it's a really great question. I um, so I, here's maybe what I would say in terms of maybe what's the tie that binds or the common thread maybe um, and what, what led us down the path on all these um, pieces of content. So I worked I, for about almost 20 years. I worked for a company called CEB. CEB was acquired in 2017 by Gartner group. And so it's now the business side or the, um, the corporate uh, side of Gartner. Gartner obviously known for IT research and, and CEB did HR, marketing, sales, finance, basically we did IT as well, but, um, but covered all the other corporate functions. Um, and so now it's one combined company, but I ran the sales and customer service practice for a long time. So probably the simple reason was it was my job. So that's why I ended up signing these things. But I think, you know, CB was an interesting uh, business where we, our model was, you know, Gartner, I think people, everyone knows Gartner, right? Household brands. Um, obviously uh, your listeners know Gartner very well. Um, and their companies might have a love-hate relationship with Gartner, <laughs> depending on where they are in the quadrant, right? Um, but it is a Gartner is an expert-based um, analyst model, meaning they hire people who are former CIOs and CTOs and network administrators and people HR tech folks, and they they come in and they cover the market and they understand what the latest and greatest is and what the different vendors are doing. They evaluate the vendors, of course, but then they also prognosticate around, you know, what are, what's next? Um, you know, what's going to, where people, where's the market going, et cetera. Um, CEB was a different model. It was more of a network based research model. So we, we didn't hire, take my practice area, for instance, in sales, um, in customer service, we didn't hire 
people who ran sales organizations or who were salespeople or sales managers. We didn't hire people who ran call centers or were CX leaders um, or customer success leaders. We hired people who were good researchers and, and analytically minded. And our view was that is actually the harder thing to teach. And so when we bring these people in who can think really critically about big problems, we will teach them what they need to know about sales or customer service or customer success, whatever the topic was. Um, but, you know, our our MO at CEB was always, we, we used to call our research approach a disagreement research, which was always trying to figure out what are the pillars in the conventional wisdom, you know, around sales or, you know, customer success, customer support, um, that we can go test with data and research. And in, in an ideal world, we find out that, you know, the, the customers think this, it turns out it's the opposite. Uh, and, and it's a counterintuitive head stepping finding, but the data backs it up and it's rooted in social science. And there's examples of other companies doing things the right way. So all the books you point out, look, it, by the way, I would say we did this for 20 years and we've got four books to show for it. So, oh, and the fourth one was after I left CB. So I got three books to show for it when I was at CB. So getting this right is really hard. turns out there's a lot of conventional wisdom. It's actually right. But, um, but every once in a while you find this, this kind of weak point, the soft spot in like what people believe. And that book you held up, Effortless Experience, is a great example of that, you know? And I think that's when you can get that right and you can find out like, boy, the data says that what you've all been taught to believe is actually wrong and there's a better way to do it. And here's some examples of companies doing it the right way. That's, that was really like, um, you know, when we've hit gold or struck gold, but it's, it didn't happen that often. So <laughs> well, what's, Maybe uh, what's one of the most surprising things you found? It could be across any of the books. Like what was sure. the biggest surprise that you ran into personally? Um, I think the, it's a hard, it's a really hard question to say there's one. Like, it's like, if you ask me which of my four kids I like the best or something <laughs> like that. So, <laughs> it's a, so I, let me, cause you held up effortless experience. So let yeah. me go to that one. I think yeah. it's a, it's a good example, but it's not to say that the other, the other books are, were not surprising uh, in their own right and weren't equally loved by their, by their parents. Yeah. Um, in effortless experience, what surprised us, you know, in, um, in the world of customer experience, I think everybody knows, and it's not going to surprise anybody listening to the show with this statement, but everybody knows there are moments of truth. Um, in the customer experience, like there's the moment I learn about the platform. There's the moment I buy it, right? The the sales experience. There's the moment I I uh, use it, right? And I st I start to get value. There's a moment where I have a problem with it, and I've got to call for help. We specifically studied that last moment. You know what? How do companies tend to approach those moments of truth, specifically when the thing you bought from the vendor isn't doing what you want it to do? It's either like technically not working, or it's not delivering the value, and you reach out to the company that sold it, sold it to you for help. And the conventional wisdom has always been, when the customer calls you with a problem, or emails you, or opens a ticket, or chats you, or whatever, when they reach out to you with a problem, it's not enough to do what they want you to do. You've got to do more than that. You've got to surprise them. You've got to delight them. You've got to wow them. And when you do that stuff, you build a moat around that customer relationship that is impossible for your competitors to, to uh, breach, right? You've, you've just solidified that customer relationship because you've just blown them away with this exceptional service experience. And, you know, there's lots of TV commercials about this and blog posts about this and YouTube videos and so on and so forth. What we found in the research was that um, customers whose expectations are exceeded in those service moments are actually statistically no more loyal than the customers whose expectations were simply met. And so there's two big surprises there. One is 
meeting expectations is actually really good for your customers. And then two, going above and beyond is really expensive for you. It doesn't pay off in terms of driving incremental loyalty. That when we first, we wrote an article um, that preceded the book. It came out in 2010 in HBR called Stop Trying to Delight Your Customers. And it was an article that we got like no shortage of hate mail about. Like it just was like every, if you go to like, look, if you guys go to any call center still to this day, like, you know, the crucible of customer service where people handle problems for customers, there is this ethos there um, where uh, moments of delight and wow and surprise and exceptional service are just rewarded. It's like if somebody goes above and beyond and a customer writes a tweet about it or sends a, the CEO an email or gets, you know, does a TikTok about how amazing it was, you haul that rep up in front of everyone else, you give them a Starbucks gift card and you say, everybody go out and do the same thing. Like we are, we are all about delighting the customer. That surprises people who have interactions with companies that that's what companies tell their people to do. Cause most people feel like I'm almost never delighted by the companies I do business with, especially on the consumer side. But again, what we found is like, that is a, a, upside down business strategy. It doesn't pay off. And there's a much, there's a much better thing to do. What we found specifically was the key to, to delighting the customer is actually not delighting them in the way you think. It's actually making the interaction surprisingly effortless, removing these points of friction that tend to create disloyalty in the relationship. And when you make it easy, those customers come back more often. They buy more from you. They say great things about you, or at least don't say bad things about you. Um, and it's way cheaper for you to deliver it. Like this is a cost savings that your customers actually want. And there aren't a lot of areas where you can say we cut costs for the company and it delivered a better outcome for the customer. This is one of them. If you make those service interactions easier, it's cheaper for you. It's better for them. And by the way, it's also better for your frontline because they don't like delivering high effort, burdensome interactions to customers any more than customers like getting them. So the, the interesting point about that, right? This, this idea of um, reducing friction, reducing the effort, right? For a for a customer to have to like jump through hoops, right? Like if I can make yeah. this as um, simple for them to glide through as possible, um, I actually see that now manifesting itself. I'm going to, or I'm going to make this, uh, it's not a proclamation. I'm just going to say that I, I feel like this is actually from a service perspective is now you're starting to see this manifest itself in other aspects of a business, right? Yeah. In marketing for years, right? We would put yeah. friction because that would help us with our, that would help us with our business metric, right? If I get your email address, great. Now that helps me with the business metric. Um, I've got your email address captured for me to talk to you later, but that creates friction in the process. And now you're starting to see where are marketers going? They're removing the form. They're trying to find other ways to know who you are so that I can create a more effortless experience in marketing so that what am I doing? I'm actually delivering you information that's valuable ahead of the sale, right? I'm trying to grease the skids as much as possible. If I can reduce yeah. that effort, that actually helps set us, that actually helps us from like a, um, uh, sales perspective, right? It reduces our CAC if we can actually kind of get you more into our funnel, uh, into our low cost marketing type of activities um, before I get you to a sales rep, um, you know, where in previous, I think it's like form, sign up, I get you on the phone yep. with a sales rep. That actually increases our cost more so than if I can deliver a more effortless experience through marketing. Yeah, it's a great example. And, you know, there's what I've been so surprised by with effortless is so the study was based on, you know, customer service, like uh, call center interactions, like support tickets, um, you know, literally support interactions, customer care, customer service interactions. But what I found so interesting is kind of what Jeff's talking about, which is this idea of being easy to do business with is not just true in customer service where the thing you bought doesn't work. It's true uh, in marketing. It's also, it turns out, one of the, the findings in um, Challenger Sale and then also in Jolt Effect is 
that there's a lot that salespeople can and should do to make the buying experience easier for the customer. Um, it's gotten picked up by product teams too, who want to know how do we design easier to use products? Like that ideal of like, I don't even need an instruction guide because it just works. It walks me through it. You know, the old, um, well, I guess not even old. I think like the iPhone is a great example of that. Like it just guides you through it. You don't need a manual. I don't even know if it comes with one. It used to not, maybe it does now. I don't know. But, um, but nobody uses it, right? <laughs> like you don't, it's just, it's kind of intuitive. And I think that's the gold standard is like, how do you make it so intuitive and simple? Um, and so I, I, I presented this to a group of um, managers who oversee retail store operations for a major, major clothing brand. And, uh, and they were all about how do we design the flow of the store so that's an easier shopping experience? What are the friction points? How do we, you know, who's our shopper and, and how, what would make this, this experience easier for them? And so, I, again, this idea of being easy to do business with, as a, a mentor of mine once said, there's food for many winters when it comes to being easy to do business with, because most companies are really bad at this. So, Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say is actually you start to notice, um, you know, especially in certain industry, right? If you're in an industry, right, you start to notice, okay, what are the competitors doing? And yeah. you start actually sometimes, right, you look at competitors and say, oh, we have to replicate that. Or maybe that's a good thing for us to do, right? Sometimes you look at it and actually say, wow, actually, uh, we need to go the other direction because look at what that's, you know, look at what that could cause. And so I think you're right too about, um, you know, you're, you're starting to notice how um, in each of these aspects, marketing, sales, customer success, product, uh, you know, you're noticing, hey, we're trying to drive at the end of the day, great business results, which is like net retention, gross retention, you know, yep. keep long, successful, healthy businesses. And in order to do that, we need to figure out how to um, utilize technology to reduce the friction that we create in these processes. Because in essence, we've also really built a lot of processes around our internal, as much as we wanna say we have customer journeys, as much as we wanna say, hey, we've got these ideal customers, right? More likely than not, we've designed a process because it benefits us as a business. Sure. We get to track something in a certain way, we get the right data that we need. Um, and so it's actually forcing, I think, a lot more uh, companies to actually look and say, are we customer centric? Have we actually designed um, a great customer experience in in a lot of cases the answer is no because we've said we've said that but we just haven't done it in action yes yeah. yeah i look there's a um that is that is maybe the um more uh, or better articulated version of the thread i think jeff across all the books which is a lot of it does get down to you know the fact that companies say they're or that they they preach customer centricity it's they everybody says it's super important. One of the big customer centricity initiative. It's customer at the center. You know, customer every. You know, it's all about understanding the customer. But if you go and figure out like, well, how did you decide <clears throat> that this was the right way to engage them from a marketing standpoint? How did you decide this is the way you that the you know to sell the customer? How do you decide this is the way they want you know their customer success team working with them, or this is the way to handle issues? it's all internally generated assumptions, right? Yeah. And I think when you go out and test these things with data, you find that a lot of what we're, we're and again, it's not that anybody's um, you know, nefarious or, or you know, it's some mean-spirited stuff. It's like, we think we know what customers want, but when you actually go out and test what customers really want, it's like, it's often not the thing companies assume that customers want. And it's, um, you take Challenger, like it's a great example of, you know, we believe the thing that the customer wants is for a salesperson to come in and ask them what's keeping them up at night, to diagnose their needs, <clears throat> understand their business, really get to know them, and then prescribe a solution that addresses their problems. But it turns out in a world where customers can learn on their own, maybe they wanted that back in the 70s and 80s, but what they want today 
is the salesperson who doesn't ask what's keeping them up at night, but shows them what should be keeping them up at night. Because look, the thing I want now in a world where I'm awash with information is the thing I can't find on the internet. The thing that you guys know that I need to know. And and then I'll answer your questions all day long. Like, But that's a that's very counterintuitive. I remember when we first started presenting that research, um, as similarly, it kind of generated a lot of like rotten tomatoes thrown our way. And, and I think started a lot of kind of debates and arguments because it raised this question of like, what sort of, you know, not just what sort of salesperson is most effective today, but what kind of relationship do our customers want from us? What are they actually looking for from us? But it answered those questions in a very surprising way that some people were like, hallelujah. And some people were like, damn, you guys, <laughs> like, you know, and, yeah. and, um, uh, because in some ways, like we, I think we had revealed with data that the emperor had no clothes, or at least the emperor had changed their clothes in the past like 30 or 40 years. And it was, you know, we're, we're selling in a different environment today. Well, there's a, a guy that I think Jeff and I both follow on LinkedIn named Andy Raskin. And he, mm-hmm. he's, he's, um, he, he's a, I don't know how to describe him, Jeff. Is it, he's like a messaging marketing. Yeah. He kind of, he kind of, kind of uh, coins it as like strategic narrative building for companies. He yeah. works with executive yeah. teams to try and help them. He, he tries to help. Um, I would think of creating like that, that brand that is like external in the market. How, you know, how do we kind of yeah. tie that story together from a strategic narrative perspective? Mm-hmm. But he, he has this concept of old way, new way, which I, I think sticks out in what you were just saying as well. It's like, no, no, let me, let me tell you, like, and you, you mentioned this earlier too, like your point of strength as a salesperson or a customer success person, or even a support person is the fact that you get to see a lot of the same types of customers over and over and over and how they're yeah. using the product. You're uniquely positioned to provide value in that case. But, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's about, uh, about having sort of the gumption to, to show a different way and, and to push back a little bit. Yeah. I I've been doing this for like 20 years now, over 20 years now. And you said something as we were getting ready for this call, which literally blew my mind. People are looking for personal trainers and not bartenders. Yeah. Expand on that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, I think we were talking about it in the context of CS and I think to be, right. to be clear, you know, um, I think as a, as I mentioned, to you guys, there's a study waiting to be done. Um, but in sales, we know challengers win and relationship builders lose, right? Um, so call the challenger your personal trainer, your relationship builder is the bartender. And the difference, and what I think I'm getting to with that <clears throat> with that metaphor is, you know, the bartender is <clears throat> is an order taker, right? They're they're empathetic. They're you know a shoulder to cry on. They're just going to serve you up another drink. You ask them to jump, they ask how high. Um, you know, agree with everything you say. The the personal trainer is going to push your thinking. Um, they're going to, you know, quite literally get you out of bed in the morning, get you to do another rep, tell you what's what you need to hear, maybe not what you want to hear. Um, and what we found is that I think a lot of in a lot of sales sales thinking is that that customer centric approach is to be the bartender, right? It's to be to yeah. do what the customer wants you to do. And what the data showed is that actually the best salespeople, the ones who build relationships founded not on likability. In generosity with time, which is all very important, but it are the people who actually build relationships founded on business value. What's the thing I know that you don't know, but you need to know to be more successful that I can teach to you that will probably grab you by the lapels and shake you out of your comfort zone. And, and it'll be a hard conversation, but ultimately is the right answer for you and your business. That's more the personal trainer challenger approach. Now, we what's interesting is we ran that same study in customer support. Um, many years later, uh, it was in an HBR article called Kick-Ass Customer Service, which admittedly has the 
the least HBR sounding title of anything they've yeah. ever published, but it wasn't my idea. Um, and so um, more the Hartford Business Review than the Harvard Business Review. <laughs> no offense to anybody from Hartford, right? But um, so that article, we actually did the same kind of profile analysis, but we looked at customer support professionals in B2C and B2B. And we found they fell into seven different profiles. I won't go through all seven. The one that almost every support leader wants to hire and believes is the profile is what we call the empathizer. And and you mentioned this, Jay, as a, you know, this is the mindset that perpetuates across a lot of a lot of CS as well, right? We want to be take this empathetic posture. We want to sit on the customer side of the table. We want to walk a mile in their shoes. We want to understand what's keeping them up at night. We want to, you know, be deeply empathetic toward toward their needs. Um, what we found is uh, that those people are they dominate the customer support landscape across seven profiles. They were like 35% of the population, which across seven is like a huge, huge chunk yeah. of it. Then um, if you look at which profile customer support leaders want to hire with their next open position, it's like 40% of them put their finger on the empathizer and said, that's the person I need. It like, look in a world where, you know, let's be honest, your customer's not calling you first. What they're trying to do is figure out the hack on YouTube or wherever that keeps them from having to call you. They go to your website, try to do it on their own. They go to the app. They finally have to call you. Um, in, in the mindset of support leaders is that's the moment of need where the customer really wants that empathetic professional to, to handle their issue. We found that empathizers actually finished toward the bottom, actually, when you looked at performance in terms of who delivered the lowest effort experience. It was a very different profile we called the controller. Now, the controller is basically the challenger of the customer support world, the personal trainer of the customer support world. These are the people who are deep subject matter experts. They love that moment when the customer calls them up and says, hey, Jeff, I need you to do this for me because I saw it on a TikTok video or I saw it on YouTube or read on a blog. Like, here's the problem. Here's what I need you to do. They love that moment of saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow your roll. That's going to make the problem worse, not better. I see this every like five five times a day. I know exactly what to do here. I'm going to take you towards a much better path, and we're going to actually fix this the right way, not the wrong way. They love demonstrating their subject matter expertise to the the customer. What's so interesting is we did focus groups with these folks, and I remember in the first one, a group of controllers in the the room, we'd identified them through the research, and we did this focus group, just try to understand how they think about engaging customers. And I said something, I totally stuck my foot in my mouth. I was like, well, there's this other profile called the empathizer. And it turns out you guys are much better. You're not the empathizer. And somebody said, time out. We're deeply empathetic. But the difference is the way we demonstrate that. What the what all those people you're talking about do is they apologize. And what I know is that today's customer doesn't want an apology. They want to talk to somebody who's smarter than they are about the problem they're having. And so I show my empathy in a very different way, which is I instill confidence. I take them by the hand. And I, I dispense with the apologies, which, by the way, piss them off more than they were already, and I get them to where they need to be. So again, we haven't done this study in customer success, but I, I would hypothesize that you'd probably find the same thing in CS, which is the best CSMs have that personal trainer, call it challenger, call it controller mindset, right? I'm going to tell you what you need to know, not just what you're asking me for, you know, and that's the truly customer-centric approach is me having your best interests in mind, even if sometimes that's a hard message, even if it pushes your thinking a bit. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you, you don't even need to do that. Stuff. <laughs> right. That's, that's why I haven't done it. Cause I think it's going to say the same thing. So <laughs> the interesting thing that we've learned over the past few years about customer success teams, and we've seen, we haven't done like, this is the value of a researcher versus us who like, we just have anecdotes and gut feelings 
you prove it with data, which is why you're so valuable. But yeah, but you guys do this stuff. I just write about it. So I've never flown a plane, but I do believe that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 uh, the surprising fact about customer success teams, and I'm sure we'll get hate mail for this, is many of them at the end of the day are glorified white, white glove support yeah. teams in a lot yeah. of ways. Because they, they, we, we have found is they, they, they've not been defined well enough. There's not a, a, a strong enough separation between what they do on a day-to-day basis and what a support team does, yeah. what a management team does when, you know, really there's, there's a ton of opportunity for mm-hmm. you to add additional value, incremental proactive value outside of the support experience. But a lot of people will use their CSM as that trainer or as that support. Sure. So anyway, for what it's I, worth. Can, can I, Jay, just on that point, I, you know, one of the thing I, things I hear all the time, you guys, I'm sure hear this you know, constantly from CS leaders is, um, you know, in specifically in, in tech, in software, in the SaaS space, I think what we, the bane of every company's existence is the customer that churns out and blames themselves and not you. No, no, no. It was us. We didn't, we weren't ready for this. We didn't get full value, but you know, it was your fault. Right. And that's in that right there is the crux of the, the matter is that if your CSM team, your CSMs, your CS team is on the hook, for getting the customer from where they are at the point of signature to a renewal and ideally an expanded relationship. And, and even better than that, a customer who's out there raving about you, telling everyone else in the world wants to be profiled and be on stage with you, you know, at the conference or on your podcast or what have you, like that's what we're shooting for. But the way to get them there, like when, when they say it's not, it's not you guys, it's us. Like we just didn't, we didn't take full advantage. It's really you guys, you know, you didn't, you didn't actually push them hard enough. And I think oftentimes it doesn't matter if it's sales, customer support, CS, we fall into the zone of like not wanting to push our customers because we don't think it's what they want. But if, but when we study this with data and we go out to customers around the world, they tell us that the, the companies that earn their trust, that build the strongest relationships with them, push them hard. They challenge their thinking, they push them, they give them the bad news. They tell them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And they're always pushing them to get better. And these companies, these customers know that those companies are not, you know what the, like, yes, we spend a lot of money with these vendors, the financial rewards come, but that's not really what motivates them. What motivates them is that they are fully invested in our success. And if they know how to get to you know, better outcomes better than we do, they're going to tell us, even if it's not what we want to hear. That that also just reminds me too, and I think this whole idea of effortless experience, right? Kind of reducing the amount of effort, um, you kind of see, you see the ebbs and flows of, um, you know, themes or uh, big trends that happen, right? And and the internet created this trend of optionality. I have so many options. Yeah. I want to go research. Yeah. I want to see everything that's out there. And now you're yeah. seeing that contraction right back into, wait a minute, <clears throat> I don't have time to go research and look at all of these options. And so yep. I actually think too, like going down your route of like, who are great CS teams or what are the CS teams that push their customers? It's we're pushing our customer, but we're also limiting or presenting a limited amount of what's the right thing to do next, right? So instead of saying, because yeah. a lot of times what I've seen from CS teams is, well, you know, Jay, let me give you three options or four options or five options. And, you know, you pick which one's best. And we all know how that goes, right? That's the customer that turns yeah. out and says, no, 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 Jeff, it's us. We didn't pick the right yeah. one. Oh, yeah. When in essence, Especially the best CS teams go in and say, our recommendation is A, we have others. If you, you know, if you decline A, we have others in our back pocket, but I don't want to show them to you because I think A is the right thing for us to do. And, you, and that's like the thing to think it, about yeah. of like reducing optionality is actually a good thing for your customers if you do it in the right approach because it builds right. the confidence I think you were talking about from the service person. 
we, you know, so I'm going to, this is not meant to be a shameless plug, but it, you, you did this, Jeff. So I'm going to blame you, but uh, this is actually a perfect time to tell you about the new book, which is, I mean, I'm not trying to sell books, but if you want to buy the book, feel free. Um, so in the new research, um, we talk about, uh, so we, we talk about this problem of customer indecision, which by the way, in this industry is like rampant right now, customers kicking decisions down the road, hitting the pause button, keeping their powder dry, not sure it's the right time. What's what's interesting about that is like this stuff happens all the time in sales. We found that like forty to sixty percent of a salesperson's qualified pipeline will be lost to no decision, and that number was pulled middle of last year. So right now that number is much much worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is it's like a bloodbath out there um, in SaaS in particular. It, customers are just kicking cans on the road. They're disengaging. They're ghosting salespeople. They're going radio silent, and we've never really understood why this happens or what we should do to avoid that. What we actually found was that no decision losses are actually created by two different uh, drivers. The first one is the customer prefers their status quo. This is the one that all salespeople have been taught to believe is the only reason the customer goes to you, right? Is that they still believe what they're doing today is good enough. They don't believe your solution is a compelling enough alternative. They don't think solving this problem is a big enough priority in their business. Or maybe they don't see the differentiation between your platform and your competitor's platforms. That's all status quo bias. But it turns out the bigger driver of no decision losses is not preference for the status quo, it's fear of failure. Um, and and what ends up happening, what's so interesting in sales, is when the customer, when when customers get cold feet and they start to vibrate and the deal starts to feel like it's slipping through the salesperson's fingers, what most salespeople go do is they dial up the FOMO. Like, did you guys see how many zeros were on the ROI calculation I sent you? Or did you did you see this feature in the platform? Let's get back in the demo environment. Let me show you again because everyone else thinks this is awesome. Uh, or let me send you that that really awesome customer case study or proof point again. Or I try to dial up the FUD. I try to make you squirm, like you know, feel the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Create the burning platform. If those things don't work, then I usually dangle a ten percent discount that's only good this quarter, and you know, so you're gonna have to pay more for it if you don't buy it today. Now, what what is interesting is that um, those techniques, where the customer who's already sold on the status quo stinks, and your solution is much better, and solving this problem is a big priority for my business. Those techniques, actually, those FOMO tactics, actually backfire way more often than they work out. And the reason is that. The, the majority of the time, the customer is actually not worried about missing out. They're actually worried about messing up. So they're not, and specifically, and Jeff, you you hit on one of the big things they're worried about messing up, which is choosing the right direction forward. I know I want to work with your company, but what should be in and out of the proposal? Because you've shown me a million things and we can't have it all. You know what? In a world of choice overload, you know what the safest choice is? None. Don't choose anything, yeah, right? And and that is true in not just before the signature, it's true after the signature too, right? When working with my uh, CS manager and trying to figure out what do we do first and how do we get value. Um, we found that that was one big driver of, of or one big fear of failures. I'm going to choose the wrong thing. The other one is I haven't done enough homework. So this is the information overload problem you mentioned before. Like I just, I don't feel like the salesperson's going to share with me the dirty laundry. You're not, the salesperson's never going to tell you what in the platform doesn't work. They're never going to put you on the phone with a reference customer who actually hates them, right? Like the, you're never, we don't do that in sales. Like we, it's all, everything works. Everything's perfect, right? Um, it's all great. Um, and so they feel like their job is to figure out what they're being lied to about and what they're, what the salesperson's not being perfectly forthcoming about. To figure that out, I've got to do a ton of research. I got to talk to a lot of people. I got to read every white paper. I got to talk to like all the Gartner analysts, whatever. Only then can I solve for this agency dilemma problem where the salesperson knows more than I do. The last fear of failure is expectations overload, that you anchored me on benefits that I am pretty convinced my company is never going to achieve. 
Mm. And maybe not even because I don't believe you guys as a vendor. It's just like our company can't have nice things. Like there's no way we're going to get to that outcome. So when we talk about the, the new book is called The Jolt Effect. It's a set of four behaviors for solving for these drivers of these fears of failure, these drivers of indecision, judging the level of indecision, offering a recommendation. Jeff, this is exactly what you talked about. How do I go from lots of options down to the one that I think you should pick? Based on my experience selling to companies just like you, you should do this. L, limiting the exploration. I got to get you to stop spinning your wheels and consuming, 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 trying to be an expert. I got to get you to trust me as an expert. You don't need to read everything. I've already read it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be forthcoming and transparent. T, taking risk off the table. It's a huge place that customer success plays a role. How do we make it feel to the customer like you're not jumping out of a plane for the first time by yourself. You're jumping out with a tandem skydiving instructor. Let me pull forward my CS team. Let, let me have them talk to you about how we get value, go from signature to value. What does that look like? Who's involved? What are the metrics? What are the pitfalls and landmines we got to avoid, right? Like, so there, there are key roles that customer success plays, but these fears of failure are real. And they are actually what leads, that's what's driving a lot of the ghosting right now. Like nobody wants to get fired for picking the wrong thing, not doing enough research or being left holding the bag. Yeah, what you were just saying there reminded me of uh, something in Robert Cialdini's Six Principles of Influence. Yep. It's like too many options too many options too many arguments too many options just yep. it, it sinks you and installs things out you know with, with everything you've described i know we're running low on time here but everything you've described you know going back to the customer centricity point you made earlier in the discussion we were having i think a lot of companies ask their people to be customer centric on an individual yeah. basis. jeff matt like do your best with the customer give them a soft touch you know be be a partner to them what many fewer companies seem to do from my perspective is actually build processes and enablement that are customer centric. So everything you just described, if a salesperson has to come up with all that on their own, never going to happen. Yeah. And that's not disparaging a salesperson. It's the same thing for a support person, sure. yeah. a customer success person. This is why um, I don't, I, there's just such a huge enablement component of this. And I think product marketing, when you talk, I think, you know, the the, th the the people behind the scenes that are pulling together the story, pulling together the talk tracks, the the benefits and the in a in a concise and cohesive way to make all of this work yep. for the frontline people. So I don't know if you've if you've seen companies implement supporting structures that help create all that groundwork that you need to actually do this well. Yeah, absolutely. None of these I think are are stories of individual salespeople or support professionals. They, there's always an enable an enabling organization behind them, setting the the right culture, incentives, metrics, um, climate, uh, the right processes, the right technologies, the right content that helps people do the things that customers actually want. So, good example of this is Challenger. You know, um, what we always say is like Challenger. I think a lot of companies approach this the wrong way, which is like it's a sales training program, like it's a skill, it's a set of skills, and it is that. But it's also an organizational capability. And what I always say is, look, yeah. if you tell your salespeople to go out and challenge customers and push their thinking, but you haven't given them anything to challenge with, in, in other words, if marketing hasn't equipped them with great insights, they're not challenging, they're just annoying. And so that's a totally different outcome. That's not what we want. And it's a really tall task to go tell like a whole bunch of salespeople, guys, I got it. Come up with a blinding insight that your customers never thought of before. Have at it. Like, like uh, you'd be very frightened with what comes back. Like your uh, best salespeople are going to figure it out. 
a lot of your salespeople will will teach your customers into the desert, which they'll they actually will give them something to keep them up at night because they're problems that nobody can solve. Or they might teach them to value solving certain opportunities that your competitors are better at solving than you are, right? So teach them into the open arms of your competitor. Those are all bad outcomes. So it's the job of the company to figure these things out and then enable salespeople to tell those stories and customize it for one customer versus another customer, right? That's just one example, but it's true across all of these stories and all these findings that this is not about frontline individuals doing it on their own. Yeah. Amazing. Man, that time flew by. I have like three more questions, like three more things. That, uh, <laughs> that well, we did talk about was... the Jeopardy thing up front, yeah. but that's okay. That was worth doing. <laughs> uh, no, I thought this was super good. I appreciate you doing it. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Matt, where should people go to find you if they want to connect? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I always tell people, um, look me up on LinkedIn. Um, tell me you heard me on the show and you'd like to be connected. Maybe you have a follow-up question um, or you want to learn more. Happy to be be connected with all your listeners. And um, uh, well, maybe not all the listeners because I don't know how many LinkedIn connections I have. <laughs> but, uh, but that's not to discourage anybody for doing it. But if you'd like to be connected, oh, let's do it. <laughs> that's, that's true. Um, then um, if you want to learn more about um, uh, any of the books, I mean, at the they're available where all books are sold, uh, Challenger, Challenger Customer, uh, The Effortless Experience, and The Jolt Effect. You know, Jolt Effect, we've got a bunch of resources, um, uh, free tools, manager coaching tools, things like that, available on our website, jolteffect.com, if you want to check that out. Um, some good stuff on there. for If you want to you read the book, you say, hey, this is something we need to get better at in CS and sales and marketing, then, you know, some free content there for you to take advantage of. Awesome. And yeah, may, maybe, maybe at some point if we can arrange schedules, which took us a long time to yeah, it did. <laughs> follow up to this because that'd be this great. Fascinating discussion. You've got your, uh, a fountain of, of knowledge and data around exactly the things that we think about every day in our, in our community does too. So thanks. For yeah, this it. was really fun. Thank you guys. Yeah, you, and, and for the record, you responded to my cold outreach on LinkedIn <laughs> to do this. Oh, okay. This is just encouraging everyone else. <laughs> No, it's great. I this is I I end up meeting great people and I I enjoy it. It's um it's a it's a great watering hole where where people interested in some of the same topics get together, ex- exchange notes and and learn from one another. So I enjoy it. Awesome. All right, enjoy your weekend, Matt. You guys too. Take All care. Right. Hey everybody, Jay here. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. You know, this started as a labor of love for Jeff and I a couple of years ago and it's really turned into a movement around customer success and community, and we couldn't be more thrilled to be a part of it. Um, we grow this by word of mouth, so we'd, we'd love it if you're willing and you find value in what you hear on this podcast. Leave us a rating or a review on, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It'll help us grow and, and provide value to more customer success professionals. Also, if you haven't yet, please sign up for Gain, Grow, Retain, the online community. It's gaingrowretain.com. You can meet other people, make one-on-one connections, share ideas, get ideas, grow your career ultimately. Um, Be on the lookout also for live events, both in-person and virtual this year. We're excited to get back to that. And thanks for being part of the community. We look forward to talking to you soon.